Montgomery Jones and the Wizard's Revenge by L.H. Damelin, read by Peter Gilchrist. Chapter 3 Everyone okay? inquired Montgomery Jones. Well, I'm good, said Douglas, although I would appreciate being able to see more than my, my watch dial. Oh, me too, said Jemima. Is it my... Is it my imagination, or does it smell like beer in here? Well, there's definitely a musty, ale-like smell about the place, agreed Montgomery Jones. Let's just shine a little light on the subject, hmm? You know, but, but I, I, I don't, don't think any remembered to bring a torch, said Douglas. Well, I have a box of matches, said Jemima, scratching in her backpack. Just give me a moment. <laughs> there's no need, my dear. You see, I promised myself that if I ever made it back to the world of fantasy, well, assuming that's where we are, of course, I would be more prepared, spell-wise, than I was the last time Douglas and I were here. So over the last couple of years, I've memorised a number of spells which should, should serve as well for a variety of situations, remarked Monty. Like this one, for example. Apopo, Aurus, Aurus. Self-illuminum pronto. With these words, the room suddenly filled with a bright yellow light, and Douglas and Jemima were both astonished to discover its source was Montgomery Jones himself, whose tiny shape now glowed like a white-hot globule of milk iron. You're, you're, you're going. Well, like, like a firefly. How spectacular! Explained Jemima, finishing Douglas' sentence. And that must mean that we are in the world of fantasy. Correct on both counts, replied the tiny, glowing man, flying round the room with glee. I've taken a standard illumination spell and doctored it to illuminate myself. But why not make the most of my insectness while it lasts, eh? And look... It would appear that we are in a beer cellar. After all, how most peculiar. This was true indeed, for with the light, it was soon apparent that they were standing in a dusty, damp, windowless basement that was filled from floor to ceiling with large wooden beer casks stacked one on top of the other. Some of the barrels were tapped and some of the taps dripped making small, stale beer puddles on the flagstone floor. A short flight of steps with a rusty rail led up to a wooden door, and Douglas ran up them and tried the brass doorknob. Locked, I'm afraid, he said. I suppose you could always try a, a door-opening spell if you know one, Uncle Monty. Do you think they're here for the beer? said a strange, low, husky voice. If so... They bear the thing before they drink, said another in a husky murmur. The master, don't say kindly to thieves. Methinks they better leaves. Good heavens, we're not going to steal any of your beer, whoever you are, exclaimed Montgomery Jones. We've been transported here, quite by chance, I assure you. And we'd be most grateful if you could just let us get out. Transported here, my chance. That's some tall tale, isn't it? <laughs> More's likely they've come to try the ale, retorted another voice. In that case, I'd call the master. 
You know what to do. I, I said, I'll call the master if I was you, said a fourth. And with that, all the voices began to call on simultaneously. Master, 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 master. master, master. I'll put a sock in it, Merrills, came a gruff, distant voice from behind the door. I've got better things to do than pandu to your every beck and call. But the barrels just didn't stop. They kept calling out for their master in their strange, monotonous, husky whispers, which collectively was rather loud and decidedly unnerving, until eventually enraged cursing could be heard from above, followed by the, the thumping of angry footsteps and the jangling of keys and the energetic opening of the cellar door. Framed in the doorway, and illuminated by the orange glow of the lamp he was holding, was an enormous man with a dirty white apron, a bristly moustache, and an angry scowl. Can't the soul have a moment's peace, he boomed. I warn you, if you call me down here for no good reason, I'll make firewood out of the lot of... What the devil are you doing in my cellar? He suddenly roared, registering two strangers and the firefly-like creature in his basement. Uh, good, good, good morning to you, sir, said Montgomery Jones, flying up to the man and perching on the iron rail at the top of the stairs. My name is Montgomery Jones, and this is my nephew Douglas Walker and his friend Jemima Hall. I may not currently look like one in my current state, but I assure you, I'm a renowned inventor and explorer. We were transported to your world only a few moments ago from the world of reality. Now, as I was trying to explain to your, um, your, your barrel friends over there, it seems that we have ended up quite by chance, in your cellar. <laughs> a tall tale, if ever I heard one, exclaimed the man. You are shape-shifting beer thieves, you are. Come to help yourself to me ale without paying. <laughs> and that's the sum of it. I've seen your kind before, transforming yourselves into flies, and like so you can get through keyholes and steal people's merchandise. <laughs> but you didn't reckon on me talking barrels, giving the game away, did you? <laughs> he shouted, making a grab at Monty with a huge, thick-fingered hand. Good grief, good grief, there's certainly no need for that, explained Monty, dodging out the man's swiping digits. I assure you, our intentions are completely honourable. Well, my intentions is to feed you to me pet amphibian, said the man, taking another swipe at the tiny glowing, zigzagging Montgomery Jones. This is not going to end well, said Jemima to Douglas in an urgent whisper. No, I, can, I can see that, replied Douglas. But I know of someone who can help, or at least I think he can. He took from his pocket a small, tarnished silver amulet with a pink rose quartz stone and whispered the inscription that was engraved on its back. Muggins, Muggins, hear my plea. I need your help most desperately. In dire straits I am indeed. Come to my assistance with great speed. With these words, the amulet began to hum and glow. And then with a bright red flash, there appeared 
none other than Muggins McTarry, the wonderful Scottish leprechaun. This, his pointed shoes and large brass buckles, tartan kilt, an embroidered blazer with silver buttons, and a mischievous smile. Lord, dear Douglas, my boy, he exclaimed joyously. Only five minutes back in the world of fantasy and already a bit of a pickle, I see. <laughs> he remarked with a chuckle. Well, don't fret. I know this fella. He's a good man, a bit excitable, to be sure, but don't worry. I'll sort him out. And then he disappeared. In an instant, he reappeared behind the enraged and red-faced innkeeper, who was now trying to swat poor Montgomery Jones with his, his, his rolled-up apron. Albert Frogmore, am I right in presuming your ale's still the best in the country, he said, jumping up and giving the huge man a hard slap on the back. Muggins McTarry, as I live and breathe, explained the man, completely forgetting what he was doing. Of course it is, but you've come a bit early for some. We only open at noon, and as you can see, I've... I've got my hands full with some nasty, shape-shifting beer thieves. Beer thieves? Don't be daft, Albert. They're my friends, and a more honourable lot you'll seldom come across. Now, bend down, lend me your ear, and I'll tell you a little something about them, said Muggins, with a grin. So, Mr Frogmore bent low, and Muggins began to whisper in his ear. And as he listened... The burly innkeeper's expression began to change to one of amusement and wonder. A skate from the, the, the clutches of the wizards of Gamorphosite. Freed you from being a tree, you say, he exclaimed with a chuckle. Well, that's the darndest thing I've ever heard. Sounds like you're honourable folk after all. The name's Albert Frogmore proprietor of the Bantering Barrel and Bullfrog Inn, in which you find yourself, and I'm at your service. <laughs> thank you, thank you kindly, explained a, a rather fatigued Montgomery Jones. And once again, thank you, Muggins, for saving my hide. <laughs> I, I didn't know you still had the amulet, Dougie. It's a good thing, too. I'm pretty worn out. It wouldn't have been long before Mr. Frogmore had got the better of me. Ah, oh, it's a pleasure, Mr. Jones, and I see that saving you from being squished by old Albert over there is the least of your worries, for you have obviously had another run-in with Wizard Haran, and what he's done to you this time is far more serious than a, a wee bout of frozenness. But look, let's not be pessimistic. Huh? Let's get out of this pitch-dark basement so I can get a bit... You know, better look at you in the light of day. Well, I say, let's go upstairs and you continue your chat over ale and bacon and eggs, announced Mr Frogmore. A capital idea, if ever I had one, exclaimed Muggins, giving Douglas a wink. Now, tell me, Albert, how are your barrels doing then, eh? Talkative as ever. They don't give one a moment's peace, replied the innkeeper, leading them through the cellar door through a passage and up another narrow flight of stairs. But without them, the ale wouldn't have the uh, yeah, whatever it is that draws people in from miles around to sample it. So I shouldn't complain, really. And uh, what about the old fellow? A royal pain in the behind, if you ask me, 
exclaimed Mr. Frogmore, now leading them through the kitchen and into a substantial sitting-room, with a number of tables and chairs, a bar, low ceiling with large wooden beams supporting it, and a cheery fire burning in the hearth. But you can't call a place the bantering barrel and bullfrog in without a bullfrog. Now can you, Sylvester? He added with a look of annoyance, aimed at the far corner of the bar. Then, after bidding them all to sit at the table near the fire, he went into the kitchen to make the promised breakfast. Who was Mr. Frogmore talking to? asked Douglas. Ah, says Mancurian Bullfrog, Sylvester, replied Muggins. It's over there, in that corner on a bar stool, fast asleep. That's why you can't see him. Mancurian Bullfrogs are invisible to most when they're asleep. No, I wouldn't go and wake him if I were you. His sort can be quite a handful at the best of times. But as Muggins said these words, there was a, a strange, otherworldly croaking yawn. And to everyone's amazement, there materialised on the bar stool to which Muggins had indicated a huge, dark green frog about the size of a Labrador, wearing a, a dirty old paisley necktie with irregular patches of orange and yellow all over its soft, slimy skin. The frog yawned, revealing rows of razor-sharp, crooked, yellow teeth, and then opened its lids to reveal a pair of cat-like, almost luminous golden eyes that peered cunningly around the room. Hungry, remarked the frog in a slow, deep, croaky voice. And then its eyes fixed on Montgomery Jones, who was perched on a salt cellar in the middle of the table, and who still glowed slightly. Uncle Monty, I think you should get into my coat pocket immediately, said Douglas, staring at the frog, who was still staring fixedly at his minuscule uncle. Quite, quite right, my boy, said Monty. But it was all too late. In a flash, the frog had bounded off the bar stool, landed on the table around which everybody was sitting, sending knives and forks and side plates clattering and smashing to the floor. Then, as quick as lightning, it opened its huge mouth and swallowed Montgomery Jones and the salt cellar he was on in one death gulp. Oh, my gosh! He's eaten Monty, yelled Jemima. Spit him out, you brute! She screamed, making a grab for the frog. Don't be daft, exclaimed Muggins. It'll snap off your fingers. What have you done, you devilish frog? roared Albert Frogmore, rushing to the kitchen after hearing all the commotion. He's he he eaten my uncle. Do something for crying out loud, shouted Douglas. Spit him out. Spit him out or be held to pay, shouted the innkeeper where the frog just sat on the table with a smug look on its face, gulped twice and said, Tasty, in its deep, croaky voice. Then it bounded off the table and back onto its stool in the corner of the bar. Can't, can't you help him, Muggins? pleaded Jemima. I could do many things, but bringing fog back from the dead is not one of them. I'm so sorry, my friends, said Muggins with a sad shake of the head. I hope, 
Oh my, oh my, what a terrible, terrible thing, exclaimed the dismayed Albert Frogmore. You abominable amphibian, I've a good mind to turn you out for good this time. Still hungry. More food, demanded the frog. More food, you say, shrieked Albert Frogmore, now quite beside himself with rage. Chew on this. And then he lunged at the frog with a large frying pan he was holding. But the bullfrog effortlessly launched itself off the stool again and onto a table on the far side of the room. No need to be nasty, said the frog matter-of-factly, sitting on the table as if quite blameless in the whole affair. But then something strange happened. Sylvester began to look decidedly uncomfortable. He sat up, his eyes wide, his head cocked to one side. Then he began to bob his head up and down, up and down like a jack-in-the-box. Soon he was making desperate croaking noises and pawing frantically at the left side of his face with a front foot. <laughs> be, be a good froggy, open up wide and let me out said a faint voice that appeared to be coming from inside the frog's head. Never, croaked Sylvester defiantly. Then I guess it's, it's more of the same treatment for you, replied the voice. And with that the frog began to jump up and down in obvious pain, yowling, croaking in immense discomfort. Ready to let me out now, said the voice. Yes, croaked Sylvester, opening his mouth wide but with a decidedly evil gleam in his eyes. Good, I'm coming out. No, no tricks now, said Montgomery Jones. And out he flew, looking rather the worse for wear, with one slightly torn wing and covered from head to foot in a yellow-brown mucus, but surprisingly sprightly and feisty for someone who'd just been eaten by a monstrous frog. Uncle Monty! shouted Douglas and Jemima ecstatically. Hello, my dears. Thought I was a goner, did you? Well, <laughs> you shouldn't discount your old uncle too soon. I've always got a few tricks up my sleeve, he said, landing on their table with a triumphant aerial somersault. Oh, thank merciful heavens, exclaimed Muggins. Sylvester, you keep away from Mr. Jones now. You've learned your lesson. Don't make any more trouble, do you hear? But the frog was having none of it. He gave Muggins a withering stare, fixed his eyes on Montgomery Jones, and then with a defiant, enraged croak, made ready to leap off the table he was on and attack the tiny man for a second time. Of course, this never happened, for as Sylvester bounded off the table, there was a sudden flash of green light, and the frog crashed to the floor, still and lifeless, and solid stone. I'm sorry, Mr. Frogmore, I've uh, had to petrify Sylvester, but I think you'd agree he had it coming. I also think it's best he stays that way for the time being. I can always revitalise him at a later date if it suits. Oh, Mr. Murchari, you've done me the greatest of favours. That frog has been nothing but trouble for a very long time, and I'd be more than happy if he stays this way indefinitely, pronounced the innkeeper with a relieved smile. Good. <laughs> that, 
From now on, your establishment shall be known as the Bantering Barrel and Jade Bullfrog. <laughs> but it was Jade I turned him into. It's a lovely green stone, after all, and well suited to his skin colour, I dare say. Well, I know it's a name that's a little less alliterative, perhaps, but I'm certain it'll be more welcoming to the tiny folk of all persuasion, said Muggins with a chuckle. And speaking of which, how in heaven's name did you manage to survive being eaten by a Mancurian frog, Montgomery Jones? I was going to ask exactly the same question, said Douglas. I can't believe you're still alive, Uncle Monty. <laughs> well, I have two, two factors to thank for my survival, replied Montgomery Jones, busy washing himself in the finger bowl, full of hot, soapy water that, that Mr. Frogmore had kindly provided. You see, the first is my firefly-like glow, which allowed me to see what was going on inside the frog's mouth when he closed upon me. And the second was all thanks to Sylvester's extremely poor oral hygiene. I assumed he never brushed. No, never, said Albert Frogmore. He was a disgusting creature, if you must know. Well, he's not taking care of his teeth. was my saviour. You see, when I found myself inside the frog's mouth and that huge tongue began to push me towards the enormous, crunching, stabbing stalactite-like teeth, uh, I was sure it was tickets. But then I saw something dark on the side of one of Sylvester's molars and realised it was an enormous cavity. Can you believe it? A cavity so large... It was big enough for me to half-squeeze into and save myself from being chewed and swallowed. So I waited for my opportunity. I sit down the tongue and wedged myself into that decayed tooth in the nick of time. All I can say is that being inside the cavity of a rotten tooth, which is filled with the most vile and putrid substances imaginable, ranks as the most disgusting experience I have ever had to endure. But the upside of it all was that I discovered the tooth's exposed nerve, and after giving it a few good punches, caused the frog such toothache he had to let me out. It's as simple as that, concluded Montgomery Jones with a chuckle. That's the most remarkable thing I've ever heard, and you, Professor Jones, are hands down the most... Amazing person I've ever met, exclaimed Jemima. Ah, thank you, my dear. I have been very flattering, said Montgomery Jones, clearly embarrassed. But I have to say that the insect-related adventures that I'm having are becoming a tad tedious. Mr. McTarry, is there anything you can do to turn me back into something resembling my former self? I'll do my best, Mr. Jones, but the wizard did a real number on you this time, and there's no knowing how my efforts will turn out. Ah, well, I mean, let's give, let's give it the bash anyway, said Muggins. Now, Mr. Jones, I want you to look at my pretty candle. Beautiful flame, hasn't it? remarked the leprechaun. And as he spoke, a candle appeared in the palm of his outstretched right hand with a dazzling blue-purple flame. It's... Uh, it's beautiful, all right. I must take a closer look, said the tiny man, clearly mesmerised by the flame, and soon he was flying around it in 
ever smaller circles. It's so, oh, so bright, he said, flying faster and faster, nearer and nearer for the flame, until it seemed to those who were watching that he had become a blur, a sort of cone of light mixed up with the light of the candle. Wonderful, wonderful, exclaimed Muggins excitedly, and he hastily put the candle onto the floor, stepped back, and began to chant. Master candle, master flame, come and play the circle game. Master candle, master light, come and put the wrong to right. And suddenly, there was a rustling and tapping against the windows of the inn. Hey, hurry up, Mr. Frogmore. Open the window. Let them in before it's too late, shouted Muggins excitedly. So the landlord ran to the window and hastily pushed it open. And as he did, hundreds of large brown moths flew into the room and began to fly around the bright, hazy light. That's right, my pretties. Fly round the light, take back what's yours and go, cried Muggins. And soon countless moths were circling the candle so that all that could be seen was a a brown swirling mass of them. And then a moment later, they'd flown out of the window and the candle was gone and there stood Montgomery Jones, a bit dazed and dizzy, but no longer an insect. How fantastic. I'm, 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 fully, I'm fully human again. I'm back to my old self, he remarked. Muggins McTarry. I cannot thank you enough for reversing that awful spell. But Uncle Monty, you're not back to your old self, exclaimed Douglas. You may be the right size, free of wings and feelers, but you're still really old. You're white-haired and wrinkled as ever. I may look like it. I, I certainly don't feel it, my boy. I'm sorry, Mr. Montgomery Jones. This is exactly what I feared, admitted Muggins. You see, my moth friends have removed the insect and restored you back to your original human form. But they've been unable to give you back your time. Do you mean that Monty may be human again, but he still has the lifespan of a part mayfly? exclaimed Jemima. That's it in a nutshell, Miss Hall, said Muggins. Oh, my, and I've only a few hours left, cried Monty. Well, about twelve hours by my reckoning, confirmed the leprechaun. But hope still remains, he added with a smile. You see, you can do a lot of things with time. Oh, you can stretch it, you can squash it, you can twist it, you can weave it, find it, lose it, waste it, and spend it. But no one, not even the most powerful sorcerers, can destroy it. Time is indestructible. So when Iran took away your time, he couldn't have destroyed it. He must have mislaid it, sent it somewhere where he was confident it would not be easily retrieved. And I have a good idea where that is. Surely, Muggins McSharry, you're not suggesting they go there of all places, said the innkeeper, turning a little pale. They don't have much choice, Mr. Frogmore. That is where his time is certain to be. So that is where they must go. 
if Mr. Jones is to save himself from an untimely end, but with a little luck she may be masterful and grant them leave once they've found what they've lost. What is this place, Muggins? Who is the she you're referring to? asked Douglas, unnerved by Mr. Frogmore's unease. On a parallel plane, separated from the world of fantasy by the vanishing river, are the forsaken lands, where all that is lost and forgotten gravitate towards, replied Muggins. It is monumentally perilous for anyone from this world to go there for those who enter the forsaken lands. Invariably never leave. They are rapidly overwhelmed by the power of the place, and soon they've lost their way, their purpose, their thoughts, their memories, and ultimately their physical forms, leaving behind only a, a restless, tormented spirit, doomed to wander for all eternity, searching in vain for what can never again be reclaimed. I have no doubt knowing her on. But that is where he sent your time. But since you're not of this world, you should be immune from the effects of the forsaken lands. And there is one there who will know where your time is. She's the unnamed one, the self-appointed accountant and caretaker of all lost things. And it is sad that she is mercurial and predictable and terrifying, but not unjust. She may be willing to return your time if she warrants that it was taken from you unjustly. And all here know that is certainly the case. Forsaken lands is a, I've read about them in the journals of the famous explorer William Montagu, exclaimed Monty excitedly. I've always wanted to visit them, and now we have an opportunity to do so. I mean, how incredible, how exciting. And, you know, I don't like the sound of this caretaker, remarked Douglas. Who or what is she? Well, no one knows for certain, said Mr. Frogmore. It's said she's been there for over a thousand years. It's more of a, a ghost than a person, and is as powerful and unpredictable as a hurricane. Now, I, I really don't like the sound of that place, said Douglas. It's all pretty terrifying, if you ask me. And what... What if we aren't immune to the effects of the Forsaken Lands? What if we lose our way and are trapped there forever? Oh, where's your sense of adventure, Walker? said Jemima with a grin. And anyway, as Muggins says, it's not like we have a choice. We have to go there, if that's where your uncle's time is. Well, someone has to be designated warrior of any adventure, and I'm good at it, retorted Douglas. So you are, my boy, so you are, said Montgomery Jones with a chuckle. But the worry right now is not what happens when we're in the Forsaken Lands, but how we get there. For if I recall from Pontigo's journals, the Forsaken Lands can only be reached by a toll bridge that spans the Vanishing River at its narrowest point. But the Vanishing River is almost impossible to find because it constantly disappears and then reappears in the most unexpected places. Yeah, true indeed, Mr. Jones, but I have a few tricks when it comes to that old waterway. You leave the vanishing river to me. Now, best be on our way, said Muggins, making for the door of the inn. But yeah, what, about, what, what about your breakfast? 
cried the innkeeper. I'd be obliged if you'd turn them into sandwiches, Mr. Frogmore, said Muggins. Our friends have a long way to go and little time to spare. <laughs> <laughs>